0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Hello and welcome to Economist Radio. You're listening to Babbage, our weekly show on technology and science. I'm Kenneth a Senior Editor at The Economist. And coming up on today's show how to nurture
2: scientific talent in Africa. 1% or less than 1% of scientific output came from Africa. And so there are various efforts to try to cultivate scientists.
1: And how important is the color of the paint for modern cars and autonomous vehicles?
0: We still want black ones, we still want gray ones, and some unfortunate people still want brown ones. That's going to be a problem for this automated future of vehicle driving.
1: But first, European privacy law is the gold standard worldwide, and it's being strengthened even more. On May 25th, new rules will require companies to give people more control over their personal data. One way is with a right to access the information that companies have about them. But doing so sometimes ends up in a bureaucratic tangle. Joining me in the studio to discuss this is Hal Hodson, The Economist's technology correspondent. Hello, Hal. Hello, Ken. Tell me a bit about your data. If you wanted to learn about it, what a company in Europe holds on you and you're a European citizen, what would you do?
3: So, everyone is legally obliged to be able to ask any organization or individual to tell them what information they hold on them or about them. And the organization is legally obliged to respond. But the the problem with this is that no one ever does this. And so it's completely untested in the law. But now that there's the Facebook Cambridge Analytica scandal and companies that process data are increasingly valuable and powerful companies, we're starting to get still mostly privacy activists asking these questions. And it tends to lead to very strange places. It's a little bit like Freedom of Information Act requests. And so one of the main reasons I'm interested in it as a journalist is because it's a route into a legal route into the operations of firms that otherwise have no obligation to tell anybody anything but they do have a legal obligation to tell subjects about how they process their data.
1: Now let's back up a second. under the traditional EU privacy rules from 1995, that right did exist. Tell us about what the new rules are going to allow.
3: The new rules are not really going to change anything except the price. Firms used to be able to charge a 10 euro fee if they wanted. Most of the big tech companies don't bother because it's just a pain to try and collect it and they don't need that 10 euros. But now that fee is going to zero. But GDPR does not change subject access request. People are realizing that they can use this thing not just to sort of check whether companies are processing their data in a bad way, maybe they're either discriminating against them, something like that, but also just find out useful information about what's going. On inside Facebook, so
1: people can do this. It's made more easy under the new rules. It has no cost. You can probably imagine an avalanche of requests of just jokers just wanting to find things out for the sake of just encumbering the big web platforms. But you tell me it's a Kafka esque process from there. How so?
3: For instance, a privacy activist, a Belgian mathematician called Paul Olivier de Huy has been fighting with Facebook for well over a year, coming up for a year and a half now, in order to get access to data gathered about him through a tool called Facebook Pixel, which is a tool that Facebook uses to help advertisers measure the impact of their advertising. It's a little bit of JavaScript code that you embed in your web page, and it sort of measures how the people you've advertised to are moving around the web and what they're doing so that you can figure out how effective your advertising is being. Paul's data exists somewhere in a giant Facebook database, but Facebook has not built those systems in order to be able to provide Paul with that, even though they have built them in order to be able to provide advertisers with the ability to target and measure Paul based on that data.
1: But the advertisers are not targeting Paul. They are targeting someone, actually a cohort of people with characteristics like Paul. Trying to actually extract Paul from the database is incredibly hard. And in some ways, if you're a privacy advocate, you want that. You don't want to make it easy. In fact, if it was actually technically impossible, you probably would cheer that on.
3: So technical impossibility is a really good example because this is what Apple says when you ask them for your Siri data. Apple says, we have built the system that gathers and stores Siri data so that we don't know. We can't connect you with that. And the same activists who are asking for this are saying that's not acceptable because that doesn't fulfill the rights that I have as a European citizen and have had for 25 years. So there is a tension between absolutist privacy where you can just say we know nothing about this and fulfilling this right Called subject access, which says, you were demanded to tell me what you know about me.
1: But it sounds like there's a bit of optimism to the story, which is the compliance with the new EU regulations is going to be a huge headache for these large companies that have to change their systems and re-architect it so that people can get their information. But as people get more of their data, they might understand there's actually beneficial uses, not just simply nefarious ones, mm-hmm. and they'll probably be more comfortable having that right of access to share their data
3: with them. So Richard Stallman, that great free software advocate, he thinks that the way to solve this problem is to mandate that data not be collected in general. The current default of systems is to kind of store data even if you don't necessarily really need it for running things. And he proposes this hard line of just not collecting any data at all more than what you need to operate. On the other side of that spectrum is Zuckerberg and Facebook, who say, we're going to record every single thing because we can help provide a service to you. And the reason I think subject access requests are so important is because it's the only way to have an informed debate about what level of data collection we actually want to happen. On one end, Stallman, on the other end, Zuck. And and where people come down, they have to have the means to make a good decision about that.
1: I would agree with that, but I think it's a mischaracterization to say that on the other side is Zuck. I think there's a lot of well-intentioned, reasonable mainstream people who are on the side of more empirical evidence about the world is a good thing. And if we want to design better transport systems and know its usage patterns, collecting that data would be important. And it's not just someone who runs a big web platform who wants to make money out of advertising.
3: That's true. I mean, it, it's not just suck. There's plenty of people who including yourself, including to many extents me, who think that collecting data can be for the good. I mean, there's the ancient debate in public health about whether you surveil health systems in order to figure out how, what's going on and to run them better. And you could say that's a good thing because it lets you do that. Or you could say it's a bad thing because it sort of breaches the privacy of individuals. There's clearly a balance there. The reason I want subject access requests to become more formalized and more less esque is that I think they help with that debate.
1: Hal, I always love having you on the show because I can always tell that a fight between us is brewing, Uh, and right now, again, confirms that feeling that if we went longer, we'd start arguing more. But the good news, our listeners should know, is that we are going to have a formal debate on this issue of privacy at Imperial College in
3: May. We will. A formal fight. I'm looking forward to it.
1: Likewise. May the best man win.
3: Agreed. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Hal.
1: Next up, science in Africa is developing steadily. New programs are being established, and a robust new project has been created to identify and train the next generation of African scientists. It's called the Next Einstein Initiative. To learn more, I'm joined on the line from Rwanda by Amy Yi, who wrote an article on African science in this week's edition of The Economist. Amy, hello. Hi, Ken. So, Amy, how quickly are the sciences growing in Africa?
2: Well, not quickly enough, and that's a reason why this forum was held last week in Kigali. And this was the largest science gathering in Africa with almost 1,600 people attending. So um, the point of the initiative is to grow sciences here. There was a very telling report from Elsevier and the World Bank which showed that only 1% or less than 1% of scientific output came from Africa. So that 1% is an extremely low figure. And so there are various efforts to try to cultivate scientists.
1: So what are some of the things that they're doing to promote African science?
2: So the forum last week, as I mentioned, was a large, um, one of the largest, if not the largest, scientific gathering in Africa. And an initiative called the Next Einstein Forum selects stellar African scientists and uh, spotlights their work and helps support them. And the other thing that's been going on for a while is that the, um, the founder of the Next Einstein Initiative founded a network of centers called AIMS, and that stands for African Institute of Mathematical Sciences. So he founded the first one in Cape Town, South Africa in 2003. And now there are four or five others in countries across Africa, ranging from Ghana, Senegal, Cameroon, uh, Tanzania, and now Rwanda, which is the most recently opened one. And so these institutes uh, grant master's degrees in mathematical sciences, which includes broad exposure to science and math, but also problem-solving And this is in direct contrast to rote learning, which is quite common in Africa and other countries. Now, Amy,
1: let me ask, what is the goal of both the conference and the New Einstein Initiative and these AIMS centers? Is the interest in taking people who are African and turning them into great scientists to make a contribution on the global level for the big problems of science? Or is it to actually have them focus their attention on Africa-specific problems that are being unaddressed because Africa doesn't have its innate internal scientific community to address those problems?
2: Right, that's a good question. The broader initiative sort of aims to do both. So while a conference last week in Kigali Laud's top-level scientists who are doing uh, somewhat esoteric research on anything ranging from cosmology to hydrogen fuel cell to genetics, it does spotlight scientists from Africa. But Ames' goal is sort of more pragmatic, to train Africans with a broad foundation in math and science to go on to do other things that may be in industry or policy or public sector. So it is to do both. The founder of Ames and the Next Einstein Initiative is a South African uh, physicist who is the director of the Perimeter Institute in Canada. He used to be a professor of physics at Cambridge and Princeton. And his mission is to create a more fertile ground for African scientists on the continent. Many of them, if they want to do higher level science or research or get world-class training, they often have to leave Africa. And not everyone has the means to do that.
1: Now, as much as we applaud these incredible initiatives that are going to certainly boost the capacity in Africa in terms of science and technology and in mathematics, one of the risks is that as we take these great fine young minds and we bring them into the West where they get the more advanced training that you've just mentioned is part of the aim that they're going to stay there and that we're going to have that same worry that we had in the 70s and 80s of the brain drain. Has this new community talking about African science come up with a good answer to stemming that potential problem?
2: Right. Well, certainly creating institutions that are based in Africa. And the aims students get scholarships to attend, attend these institutes, by the way. So um, they're fully paid. So it's quite... Um, you know, a great opportunity for them to learn, you know, closer to home. Although AIM students come from more than 40 African countries, so it's supposed to be a pan-African initiative and not just focused, let's say, in South Africa, which is where a lot of the science research comes from because it is one of the most, if not the most developed country in Africa. Um, Just regarding the brain drain, I did speak to you know, a few of the next Einstein fellows who, having the an initiative like the Forum, kind of motivated them and re-inspired them or inspired them to perhaps come back to Africa one day, even if they're based in Europe. Amy, thank you very much. Thank you.
1: What are your thoughts on the developing science scene in Africa or the EU data privacy rules? Tell us in an email and send them to radio at economist.com or reach us on Twitter at Economist Radio. As regular listeners to Babbage will know, we often give away a book related to science and technology to one lucky listener. And the book is Seeds of Science, Why We Got It So Wrong on GMOs, or Genetically Modified Organisms. The author is Mark Linus, and is published by Bloomsbury Sigma. We've recently been deluged with requests, so we need to make the bar to getting the book a little bit higher than simply asking. So to be eligible to get the book, listeners need to answer two quick questions. The first one is, who coined the term packet in the word packet switching? Now, a packet switch network is like the internet. It breaks up the data into small chunks. It's not like a telephone system, which is a circuit switch network. Who coined that term for packet switching? Secondly, if we didn't use the term packet, what would have been a very good alternative? The first part of the question is factual. The second part is creative. We want you to use both hemispheres of your mind at Babbage. To be eligible to get the book, please send your answers to radio at economist.com, and I will subjectively choose the winner. Please let us know also if we can cite you as the winner when we announce the winning reply on an upcoming show. And finally, cars and paint. Henry Ford once quipped that customers could have any color they wished, so long as it was black. But consumer power won out, and now there's a multiplicity of colors on the road. This has never been a problem for car makers before, but now as modern cars are fitted with sensors for things like automatic braking, and self-driving cars need zillions of sensors to operate, it's become a big problem. Different colors produce different outputs in terms of light reflection and other signals that the sensors detect. To tell us more, joining me in the studio is Paul Markley, The Economist's Innovation Editor. Hello, Paul. Hello again. So, Paul, what's the problem of cars of different colors? The problem is
0: that 17% of cars are black, and there's many other dark colors as well. And that's second only to white, which is the most popular color worldwide. Now, white's great because it reflects both heat, which is a form of radiation, but white also reflects the wavelengths of the sensors that are increasingly being fitted into cars, both for automatic safety systems such as automatic braking, but also for driverless cars that use not only radar, but a process that's similar called LIDAR, which uses laser light. So the dark colours of cars tend to absorb these signals which means that these systems either as safety systems or self-driving car systems just may not see them but now it's very unlikely that people are saying well we are going to have all our cars painted white you know we still want black ones we still want gray ones and some unfortunate people still want brown ones and that's going to be a problem for this automated future of vehicle driving so what's needed is some kind of paint that allows people to have the colors they want, but also reflect the signals from radar and LIDAR.
1: So in other words, if you can't actually get what you need by bouncing the signals off of the car, maybe the car's paint can be the signal sending it back to the car, other cars.
0: Yes, that's what they're doing, and the inspiration for that oddly enough is the aubergine, or the eggplant for our American listeners, which is a really dark purple, and yet at its leisure in sunny fields, it's actually very cool. The reason for that is that the light goes through the dark surface and reflected out by the white inside. So if you could engineer paint to do the same thing, you'd have a black surface or a very dark blue surface. The light would go through it, through the particles or the wavelengths would, and then be reflected back by a white undercoat. So you therefore have a reflective surface that's also a dark surface. And that, in the high-tech world of paint technology, is what PPG, which is one of the world's biggest suppliers of paints and coatings,
1: is up to. Okay. So problem of the colors and problem solved by painting it slightly differently.
0: Well, we, with special smart paints, if you like, to use the term. And these paints still allow you to have the colors, but will also transmit and reflect the uh, radar waves and the lidar waves. And the same paints, of course, could be used not just on cars, but also on road furniture, on on lines in the road and on things beside the road as well, which the lidars and the radars could also miss.
1: So does it need to stop there or is there anything else you can do with the paint?
0: Uh, One of the uses is actually to go the other way, to make it absorb more light, because some signs are highly reflective. Well, they will dazzle LIDARs. So again, that would cause a problem. So you could tone those down. So they could still be very bright for the human eye, but less bright for the LIDAR. And also, if you engineer the particles of the paint in other ways, you can come up with special sorts of surfaces that shed water, for instance. And the ability to do that means it would also shed the dirt and the ice. So maybe you could have a car that you don't have to clean anymore.
1: So whereas before, in terms of automotive travel, we designed everything for the human, we now need to have a whole new infrastructure play to design things both for the human and for the sensors that are going to be watching the road even more commonly than the human.
0: Exactly, because both the human and the robot, if you like, have different levels of vision, and we need to make cars that can be seen both by us and by them.
1: Paul, my final question is the most challenging what do you have against brown cars? I don't like they're so seventies. Yeah, but the seventies were great.
0: <laughs> the cars
1: were. not Paul, thank you very much. Pleasure. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Don't forget to pick up the latest issue of The Economist or find us online at economist.com. And if you like our journalism, please take out a subscription right away by going to subscribe.economist.com. You will be thrilled that you did, and if you didn't, write me and tell me why. I'm Kenneth Couquier and in london this is the acorn nest